Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Gospel means good news. It's the good news concerning Jesus Christ that is contained in the New Testament, as stated through the writings of four evangelists, the first four books of the New Testament. Mark, the earliest gospel, was likely written by John Mark, who was a cousin to Barnabas. John Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, but abandoned the pair during the trip to return to Jerusalem. John Mark became a source of conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Mark wrote his gospel between 66 and 70 AD, likely during the persecution of Nero. The earliest gospel is also the shortest gospel and focuses principally on Jesus's earthly ministry, beginning with Jesus's baptism. Mark contains no birth narratives. The next two Gospels in the sequence, Matthew and Luke, likely had access to Mark's Gospel while they were composing their own and incorporated parts of it into their own rendition. Both Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with genealogies and birth narratives and they are the only Gospels to do so. In the Anglican Church, we function on a three-year lectionary cycle, years A, B, and C. We're currently in year A. At Christmas time, we have two options for birth narratives, Matthew and Luke. This year, our birth narratives are found in Matthew for this fourth Sunday of Advent. Luke's gospel focuses heavily on the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus, but with a different emphasis. Luke focuses on the human side of Jesus's incarnational birth with narratives about the angel Gabriel's annunciation with Mary where she is informed about what is to take place. Luke contains both the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, and the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah, which, by the way, are canticles that are part of our daily offices throughout the course of the year. Luke also contains the visitation of the shepherds, which are not mentioned in Matthew. 
John's gospel, written near the close of the first century, is often referred to as the spiritual gospel. John's gospel begins in the beginning and presents Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God, who was present from the beginning. Our lesson today is the Annunciation from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew begins with the genealogy tracing Jesus' lineage back to King David. And immediately following the genealogy is the Annunciation of the angel with Joseph. Joseph was a good Jewish man. No sexual intercourse prior to marriage. So when his betrothed, Mary, showed up pregnant, Joseph knew that the child was not his. Now, Joseph had no desire to humiliate her or to make her into a public skeptical or scandal. And so he had intended that he would divorce her privately and quietly. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. You heard the reading of that from Matthew's Gospel. The angel appeared to Joseph to inform him of the virgin birth and what the child's name should be at the time of his birth. In the dream, Joseph is reminded of the prophecy from Isaiah 7, which you also heard today. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us. The angel tells Joseph that the child is to be named Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew. Yeshua would ordinarily be translated into English as Joshua, not Jesus. Joshua in English, or in the Hebrew, means Yah, short for Yahweh, saves. Yeshua means God is salvation. The English Jesus is a transliteration of the Greek and Latin. After the annunciation of the angel with Joseph, Matthew tells us that Joseph was obedient after which Matthew jumps to the Epiphany, which is the visitation of the Magi. Historically, we often include the visitation of the Magi with our Christmas narratives. It is more appropriately placed with the Epiphany. In effect, what happened is that if you read throughout Matthew's gospel in its entirety, there's a phrase that appears over and over again. And the phrase goes something like this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets. Matthew's primary interest was to make the connection between what was happening in the incarnation of Messiah with what had been written by the prophets 
among which Isaiah is a principal figure. When the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, the angel is basically saying to him, remember Isaiah 7? That's what's happening here. This child that Mary is carrying is the one that was prophesied. He's the one. When he's born, call him Yeshua. It's likely the case that Jesus' family spoke Aramaic. Jesus in Aramaic is the same as Jesus in the Greek. It's likely that the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus' contemporaries were most familiar with was the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament as it was written in Greek. Whenever you see the Septuagint listed in commentaries or whatever, you will see it abbreviated with the letters LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. 70 derives from the story reported in the letter of Aristeus that the Hebrew Torah had been translated into Greek at the request of Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, between 285, around the, the year 285 BCE to 247 BCE by 70 Jewish scholars, or according to a later tradition, 72 with six scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Parenthetically, the deuterocanonical books, which are called Apocrypha, which in this Bible are listed at the end, were included in the Septuagint, but are not included when the Old Testament is written in Hebrew language. So if you examine this Bible, you'll see the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the Apocrypha readings, what we call the Deuterocanonicals. Article 6 of the 39 Articles of Religion in the Anglican tradition says, and the other books, as here Ome saith, the church doth read for example of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine. So you'll notice that during the course of the year, there will be readings in the daily offices and the like um, from the Deuterocanonicals. We would never use them to establish doctrine, but they are considered beneficial for instruction and manner of life. It was really important to Matthew that the incarnation be rooted in the tradition of Hebrew scripture, which is why there is this reference to, quote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, end quote. Hebrew scripture consists of, of writings from 16 prophets. There are four major prophets. They are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. 
those writings are followed by the writings of 12 minor prophets, and they are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The Old Testament can be neatly arranged into four sections, which are the Torah, or Pentateuch, the first five books, the five, what has traditionally been called the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, followed by the historical books. And then there's wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, followed by the writings of the prophets. That's the Old Testament as we know it. When reference is made to the law, the reference is to Torah. When the reference is to prophets, it is to those 16 books that close out the Old Testament. Many of the Old Testament prophecies that were considered to be fulfilled in the incarnation are found in Isaiah, which is why seven of the 12 Hebrew scripture lessons in the three-year lectionary cycle are from Isaiah. The, quote, sign of Emmanuel, end quote, is our lectionary reading for today from Isaiah. And the lesson is this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. Locating the foundation for incarnation in Hebrew scriptures was also important to St. Paul. The book of Romans can easily be considered St. Paul's opus, if you will. It contains his systematic theology and a summary of his ethics. Paul opens Romans with an introduction about himself, who he was. He was a servant of Christ Jesus to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In this opening section, Paul is establishing the authority of his teaching by rooting what he's saying in the promises that were provided to mankind through those 16 prophets. The incarnation of Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. It's important for me to say to you also that the early church fathers 
principally among them Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus, shared Matthew's passion for connecting the incarnation of Jesus Christ to the law and the prophets, and to find the roots for it in Hebrew scripture. You'll hear some denominations referring themselves to a new as being New Testament churches. There's no such thing. Because the New Testament does not exist separate and apart from the old. The New Testament came into being within the context of Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament. A little later, we will profess what we believe using the words of the Nicene Creed, which is a Trinitarian formula of what constitutes Orthodox Christian faith. Years ago, I was asked the question, what, what if you don't believe everything that's in the creed? Well, that would make you a heretic. Because the creed has been established as that which the church believes. In the section of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed that deals with the Holy Spirit, and I use the entire name of the creed because the Holy Spirit piece was added in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, in the section on the Holy Spirit, we declare that the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. Everything that happens in the incarnation is congruent with what we learn from prophets. Matthew reminds us of that reality, as does St. Paul in Romans chapter 1. Paul's writings are the earliest recorded in the New Testament. Over the past four weeks, we've been preparing for incarnation to celebrate it yet again. In our collect of the day, we asked the Lord to stir up his power and with great might to come among us. May his grace and mercy deliver us from the impediments caused by our sinfulness that we might be delivered and freed from their effects. This incarnation which we are about to celebrate on Wednesday is rooted in a history that transcends time. The seeds for it were present from the beginning. Because of that extensive history, I reserve the right to say to other people, Merry Christmas, as opposed to Happy Holidays. There are a group of Americans, and I use that term loosely, who would like to undo that tradition, which is so much a part of the fiber of who we are. Everything that I have told you today is rooted in over 4,000 years of recorded history. 
And yet we have a group of postmodern morons who seek to undo all that and pretend that 4,000 years of recorded history never happened and had no impact on who we have become as a civilization in the West. And so they're going to clamor when you say to somebody, Merry Christmas, because they have a strong desire to secularize everything that Western civilization is about. And I put forth to you that apart from the Judeo-Christian tradition, there would be no Western civilization. So I say to people that I encounter, Merry Christmas. And I invite you to do the same. It's consistent with over 4,000 years of recorded history. There's something about things that stand the test of time that provide for us a sense of security and a foundation from which we can organize and structure our lives. So I would encourage each one of us to use this as a means of doing this. This has been an effective compass for Western civilization from its inception. It is what has gotten us to this point. It has enabled us to identify things that have occurred in history that needed to be corrected and changed. Now, have there been times when this book has been abused by people who sought to advance their own cause, separate and apart from the intent of this book? There have. But those of us who recognize that this is the church's book, and that we have a responsibility to use it as sacred text, no better than to do things like that. Now, the advantage of being a part of the church is that when we are at our best, we're able to hold one another accountable for what it is we speak as truth. One of the ways that we use the Nicene Creed, and I've talked about this again and again, is that um, we say the creed immediately after the homily or the sermon because the creed is intended to correct anything that I or Deacon Josh might have said inadvertently in the sermon or homily that was heretical. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Each of our Advent candles are now lit. When we gather on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, we will light the Christus candle in the center to mark our commemoration of the birth and the incarnation of God with us, Emmanuel 
God with us. And God continues to be with us to this very day. And so we are coming down the last lap in preparing our, our hearts and our minds to celebrate this incarnation yet again. And it is with joy and enthusiasm that I hope that we'll do so this year and every additional year that we have as long as we walk the face of this earth and the Lord tarries. And it's important that we not forget that when we think about incarnation, it's not only when Jesus came the first time for which we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate, but it is also for when he comes the second time to judge the world. So in our final preparation for Christmas, my prayer is that our hearts and minds will be adequately ready for his coming.